Chapter Fourteen of the Mountains of California. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Caitlin Sticko. The Mountains of California by John Muir. Chapter Fourteen The Wild Sheep. Ovis, Montana. The wild sheep ranks highest among the animal mountaineers of the Sierra. Possessed of keen sight and scent, and strong limbs, he dwells secure amid the loftiest summits, leaping unscathed from crag to crag, up and down the fronts of giddy precipices, crossing foaming torrents and slopes of frozen snow, exposed to the wildest storms yet maintaining a brave, warm life, and developing from generation to generation in perfect strength and beauty. Nearly all the lofty mountain chains of the globe are inhabited by wild sheep, most of which, on account of the remote and all but inaccessible regions where they dwell, are imperfectly known as yet. They are classified by different naturalists under from five to ten distinct species or varieties, the best known being the burrell of the Himalaya, Ovis burrell, Blythe, the Argali, the large wild sheep of Central and Northern Asia, Ovis ammon, Lynn, or Caprovis argali, the Corsican mouflon, Ovis musamon, Pal, the Aodad of the mountains of Northern Africa, Amitragus tragelaphus, and the Rocky Mountain Bighorn, Ovis Montana. To this last-named species belongs the wild sheep of the Sierra. Its range, according to the late Professor Baird of the Smithsonian Institution, extends, quote, from the region of Upper Missouri and Yellowstone to the Rocky Mountains and the high grounds adjacent to them on the eastern slope, and as far south as the Rio Grande. Westward, it extends to the coast ranges of Washington, Oregon, and California, and follows the highlands some distance into Mexico. Quote. Footnote 1. Pacific Railroad Survey, Volume 8, page 678. Throughout the vast region bounded on the east by the Wasatch Mountains, and on the west by the Sierra, there are more than a hundred subordinate ranges and mountain groups, treading north and south, range beyond range, with summits rising from eight to twelve thousand feet above the level of the sea, probably all of which, according to my own observations, is or has been inhabited by this species. Compared with the Argali, which, considering its size and the vast extent of its range, is probably the most important of all the wild sheep, our species is about the same size, but the horns are less twisted and less divergent. The most important characteristics are, however, essentially the same, some of the best naturalists maintaining that the two are only varied forms of one species. In accordance with this view, Couvert conjectures that since Central Asia seems to be the region where sheep first appeared, and from which it has been distributed, the Argali may have been distributed over this continent from Asia by crossing the Bering Strait on ice. This conjecture is not so ill-founded as at first sight would appear, for the strait is only about fifty miles wide, is interrupted by three islands, and is jammed with ice nearly every winter. 
Furthermore, the argali is abundant on the mountains adjacent to the strait at East Cape, where it is well known to the Chukchi hunters and where I have seen many of their horns. On account of the extreme variability of the sheep under culture, it is generally supposed that the innumerable domestic breeds have all been derived from the few wild species, but the whole question is involved in obscurity. According to Darwin, sheep have been domesticated from a very ancient period, the remains of a small breed, differing from any now known, having been found in the famous Swiss lake dwellings. Compared with the best-known domestic breeds, we find that our wild species is much larger, and instead of an all-wool garment wears a thick overcoat of hair, like that of the deer, and an undercovering of fine wool. The hair, though rather coarse, is comfortably soft and spongy, and lies smooth, as if carefully tended with a comb and brush. The predominant color during most of the year is brownish-gray, varying to bluish-gray in the autumn. The belly and a large conspicuous patch on the buttocks are white, and the tail, which is very short, like that of a deer, is black with a yellowish border. The wool is white, and grows in beautiful spirals down out of sight among the shining hair, like delicate climbing vines among stalks of corn. The horns of the male are of an immense size, measuring in their greater diameter from five to six and a half inches, and from two and a half to three feet in length around the curve. They are yellowish-white in color, and ridged transversely like those of the domestic ram. Their cross-section near the base is somewhat triangular in outline and flattened towards the tip. Rising boldly from the top of the head, they curve gently backward and outward, then forward and outward, until about three-fourths of a circle is described, and until the flattened, blunt tips are about two feet or two and a half feet apart. Those of the female are flattened throughout their entire length, are less curved than those of the male, and much smaller, measuring less than a foot along the curve. A ram and ewe that I obtained near the Modoc lava beds from the northeast of Mount Shasta measured as follows. Height at shoulders, ram, three foot six inches, ewe, three foot zero inches. Girth around the shoulders, ram, three foot eleven inches, ewe, three foot three and three quarters inches. Length from the nose to the root of the tail, Ram, five foot, ten and one quarters inches. U, four foot, three and one half inches. Length of ears. Ram, four and three quarters inches. U, five inches. Length of tail. Ram, four and a half inches. U, five inches. Length of horns around curve. Ram, two foot, nine inches. U, eleven and a half inches. Distance across from tip to tip of horns, ram, two foot, five and one-half inches, U not given. Circumference of horns at base, ram, one foot, four inches, U six inches. The measurements of a male obtained in the Rocky Mountains by Audubon vary but little as compared with the above. The weight of his specimen was 344 pounds, footnote two which is, perhaps, about an average for full-grown males. The females are about a third lighter.
Footnote 2. Audubon and Bachmann's Quadrupeds of North America. Besides these differences in size, color, hair, etc., as noted above, we may observe that the domestic sheep, in a general way, is expressionless, like a dull bundle of something only half alive, while the wild is as elegant and graceful as a deer, every movement manifesting admirable strength and character. The tame is timid, the wild is bold. The tame is always more or less ruffled and dirty, while the wild is as smooth and clean as the flowers of his mountain pastures. The earliest mention that I have been able to find of the wild sheep in America is by Father Piccolo, a Catholic missionary at Monterey, in the year 1797, who after describing it, oddly enough, as, quote, a kind of deer with a sheep-like head, and about as large as a calf one or two years old, end quote, naturally hurries on to remark, quote, I have eaten of these beasts, their flesh is very tender and delicious. Mackenzie, in his northern travels, heard this species spoken of by the Indians as white buffaloes. And Lewis and Clark tell us that, in a time of great scarcity on the headwaters of the Missouri, they saw plenty of wild sheep, but they were quote, too shy to be shot. A few of the more energetic of the Pa-Ute Indians hunt the wild sheep every season among the more accessible sections of the High Sierra, in the neighborhood of passes where, from having been pursued, they have become extremely wary. But in the rugged wilderness of peaks and canyons, where the foaming tributaries of the San Joaquin and the King's Rivers take their rise, they fear no hunter save the wolf, and are more guileless and approachable than their tame kindred. While engaged in the work of exploring high regions where they delight to roam, I have been greatly interested in studying their habits. In the months of November and December, and probably during a considerable portion of midwinter, they all flock together, male and female, old and young. I once found a complete band of this kind numbering upward of fifty, which, on being alarmed, went bounding away across a jagged lava-bed at admirable speed, led by a majestic old ram, with the lamb safe in the middle of the flock. In spring and summer the full-grown rams form separate bands of from three to twenty, and are usually found feeding along the edges of glacier meadows, or resting among the castle-like crags of the high summits, and whether quietly feeding or scaling the wild cliffs, their noble forms and the power and beauty of their movements never fail to strike the beholder with lively admiration. Their resting places seem to be chosen with reference to sunshine and a wide outlook, and most of all to safety. Their feeding grounds are among the most beautiful of the wild gardens, bright with daisies and gentians and mats of purple brisanthus lying hidden away on rocky headlands and canyon sides, where sunshine is abundant, or down in the shady glacier valleys along the banks of the streams and lakes, where the plushy sod is greenest. Here they feast all summer, the happy wanderers, perhaps relishing the beauty as well as the taste of the lovely flora from which they feed. Illustration Snowbound on Mount Shasta
This illustration is a sketch of a small herd of mountain sheep resting comfortably on a snow-covered cliff, with one standing prominently and surveying the landscape. In contrast, a small box in the corner shows a man huddled in a blanket, almost on top of his very small campfire. Return to text. When the winter storms set in, loading their highland pastures with snow, then, like the birds, they gather and go to lower climates, usually descending the eastern flank of the range to the rough volcanic tablelands and treeless ranges of the great basin adjacent to the Sierra. They never make haste, however, and seem to have no dread of storms, many of the strongest only going down leisurely to bare, wind-swept ridges to feed on bushes and dry bunch-grass, and then returning up into the snow. Once I was snow-bound on Mount Shasta for three days, a little below the timber-line. It was a dark and stormy time, well calculated to test the skill and endurance of mountaineers. The snow-laden gale drove on night and day in hissing, blinding floods, and when at length it began to abate, I found that a small band of wild sheep had weathered the storm in the lee of a clump of dwarf pines a few yards above my storm-nest, where the snow was eight or ten feet deep. I was warm back of a rock, with blankets, bread, and fire. My brave companions lay in the snow without food, and with only the partial shelter of the short trees, yet they made no sign of suffering or faint-heartedness. In the months of May and June the wild sheep bring forth their young, in solitary and almost inaccessible crags, far above the nesting rocks of the eagle. I have frequently come upon the beds of the ewes and lambs at an elevation of from 12,000 to 13,000 feet above sea-level. These beds are simply oval-shaped hollows, pawed out among loose, disintegrating rock-chips and sand, upon some sunny spot commanding a good outlook, and partially sheltered from the winds that sweep those lofty peaks almost without intermission. Such is the cradle of the little mountaineer, aloft in the very sky, rocked in storms, curtained in clouds, sleeping in thin, icy air but wrapped in his hairy coat, and nourished by a strong, warm mother, defended from the talons of the eagle and the teeth of the sly coyote, the bony lamb grows apace. He soon learns to nibble the tufted rock-grasses and leaves of the white spearsy. His horns begin to shoot, and before summer is done he is strong and agile, and goes forth with the flock, watched by the same divine love that tends the more helpless human lamb in its cradle by the fireside. Nothing is more commonly remarked by noisy, dusty trail-travellers in the Sierra than the want of animal life. No songbirds, no deer, no squirrels, no game of any kind, they say. But if such could only go away quietly into the wilderness, sauntering afoot and alone with natural deliberation, they would soon learn that these mountain mansions are not without inhabitants, many of whom, confiding and gentle, would not try to shun their acquaintance. Illustration, Head of the Merino Ram, Domestic This illustration is a pencil or charcoal sketch of a merino ram in a photographic style. 
the ram has a fine coat of thick curly fur spiralling horns a whiskery muzzle and a docile incurious expression in its black eyes return to text in the fall of eighteen seventy three i was tracing the south fork of the san joanquin up its wild canyon to its farthest glacier fountains it was the season of alpine indian summer the sun beamed lovingly the squirrels were nutting in the pine trees butterflies hovered about the last of the golden rods the willow and maple thickets were yellow the meadows brown and the whole sunny mellow landscape glowed like a countenance in the deepest and sweetest repose on my way over the glacier polished rocks along the river i came to an expanded portion of the canyon about two miles long and half a mile wide which formed a level park enclosed with picturesque granite walls like those of yosemite valley down through the middle of it poured the beautiful river shining and spangling in the golden light yellow groves on its banks and strips of brown meadow while the whole park was astir with wild life some of which even the noisiest and least observing of travellers must have seen had they been with me deer with their supple well-grown fawns bounded from thicket to thicket as i advanced grouse kept rising from the brown grass with a great whirring of wings and alighting on the lower branches of the pines and poplars allowed a near approach as if curious to see me farther on a broad-shouldered wildcat showed himself coming out of a grove and crossing the river on a flood-jam of logs halting for a moment to look back the bird-like tamias frisked about my feet everywhere among the pine-needles and seedy grass-tufts cranes waded the shallows of the river-bends the kingfisher rattled from perch to perch the blessed ouzel sang amid the spray of every cascade where may a lonely wanderer find a more interesting family of mountain-dwellers earth-born companions and fellow-mortals it was afternoon when i joined them and the glorious landscape began to fade in the gloaming before i awoke from their enchantment then i sought a campground on the river-bank made a cupful of tea and lay down to sleep on a smooth place among the yellow leaves of an aspen grove next day i discovered yet grander landscapes and grander life following the river over huge swelling rock-bosses through a majestic canyon and past innumerable cascades the scenery in general became gradually wilder and more alpine the sugar-pine and silver firs gave place to the hardier cedar and hemlock spruce the canyon walls became more rugged and bare and gentians and arctic daisies became more abundant in the gardens and strips of meadow along the streams toward the middle of the afternoon i came to another valley strikingly wild and original in all its features and perhaps never before touched by human foot as regards area of level bottom land it is one of the very smallest of the yosemite type but its walls are sublime rising to a height of from two thousand to four thousand feet above the river at the head of the valley the main canyon forks as is found to be the case in all yosemites 
The formation of this one is due chiefly to the action of two great glaciers whose fountains lay to the eastward on the flanks of Mount Humphrey and Emerson, and a cluster of nameless peaks farther south. Illustration Head of Rocky Mountain Wild Sheep This illustration is a pencil drawing of a wild ram's head, framed in a circle within a square. The illustration is dominated by the huge, wide horns of the ram, far larger than his head. The ram's coat is flat and slightly wavy, and he regards the viewer directly with an alert expression showing a little of the whites of his protuberant eyes. Return to text. The gray, boulder-chafed river was singing loudly through the valley. But above its massy roar I heard the booming of a waterfall, which drew me eagerly on, and just as I emerged from the tangled groves and briar thickets at the head of the valley, the main fork of the river came in sight, falling fresh from its glacier fountains in a snowy cascade between granite walls two thousand feet high. The steep incline down which the glad waters thundered seemed to bar all further progress. It was not long, however, before I discovered a crooked seam in the rock, by which I was enabled to climb to the edge of a terrace that crosses the canyon, and divides the cataract nearly in the middle. Here I sat down to take breath, and make some entries in my notebook, taking advantage at the same time of my elevated position above the trees to gaze back over the valley into the heart of the noble landscape, little knowing the while what neighbors were near. After spending a few minutes in this way, I chanced to look across the fall, and there stood three sheep quietly observing me. Never did the sudden appearance of a mountain or fall or human friend more forcibly seize and rivet my attention. Anxiety to observe accurately held me perfectly still. Eagerly I marked the flowing undulations of their firm, braided muscles, their strong legs, ears, eyes, heads, their graceful, rounded necks, the color of their hair, and the bold, upsweeping curves of their noble horns. When they moved, I watched every gesture, while they, in no wise disconcerted, either by my attention or by the tumultuous roar of the water, advanced deliberately alongside the rapids, between the two divisions of the cataract, turning now and then to look at me. Presently they came to a steep, ice-burnished acclivity, which they ascended by a succession of quick, short, stiff-legged leaps, reaching the top without a struggle. This was the most startling feat of mountaineering I had ever witnessed, and considering only the mechanics of the thing, my astonishment could hardly have been greater had they displayed wings and taken to flight. Sure-footed mules on such ground would have fallen and rolled like loosened boulders. Many a time, where the slopes are far lower, I have been compelled to take off my shoes and stockings, tie them to my belt, and creep barefooted with the utmost caution. No wonder, then, that I watched the progress of these animal mountaineers with keen sympathy, and exalted in the boundless sufficiency of wild nature, displayed in their invention, construction, and keeping. A few minutes later I caught sight of a dozen more in one band, near the foot of the upper fall. 
They were standing on the same side of the river with me, only twenty-five or thirty yards away, looking as unworn and perfect as if created on the spot. It appeared by their tracks, which I had seen in the little Yosemite, and by their present position, that when I came up the canyon they were all feeding together down in the valley, and that in their haste to reach high ground, where they could look about them to ascertain the nature of the strange disturbance, they were divided, three ascending on one side the river, the rest on the other. The main band, headed by an experienced chief, now began to cross the wild rapids between the two divisions of the cascade. This was another exciting feat, for among all the varied experiences of mountaineers the crossing of boisterous, rock-dashed torrents is found to be one of the most trying to the nerves. Yet these fine fellows walked fearlessly to the brink and jumped from boulder to boulder, holding themselves in easy poise above the whirling, confusing current, as if they were doing nothing extraordinary. Illustration Crossing a Canyon Stream this illustration is a sketch of a herd of mountain sheep crossing a stream. In the foreground, a half-dozen sheep stand on one rocky bank, with a dominant sheep standing proudly and alertly a little above them in the center of the drawing. In the background, black silhouettes of sheep may be seen crossing a white torrent from rock to rock. Tall cliffs, clouds, and snow caps in the distance give the picture a majestic feel. Return to text. In the immediate foreground of this rare picture, there was a fold of ice-burnished granite, traversed by a few bold lines in which rock ferns and tufts of bryanthus were growing. The gray canyon walls on the sides, nobly sculptured and adorned with brown cedars and pines, the lofty peaks in the distance, and in the middle ground the snowy fall, the voice and soul of the landscape fringing bushes beating time to its thunder tones, the brave sheep in front of it, their gray forms slightly obscured in the spray, yet standing out in good heavy relief against the close white water, with their huge horns rising like the upturned roots of dead pine trees, while the evening sunbeams streaming up the canyon colored all the picture a rosy purple and made it glorious. After crossing the river, the dauntless climbers, led by their chief, at once began to scale the canyon wall, turning now right, now left, in long, single file, keeping well apart out of one another's way, and leaping in regular succession from crag to crag, now ascending slippery dome curves, now walking leisurely along the edges of precipices, stopping at times to gaze down at me from some flat-topped rock, with heads held aslant, as if curious to learn what I thought about it, or whether I was likely to follow them. After reaching the top of the wall, which at this place is somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 feet high, there was still visible against the sky as they lingered, looking down in groups of twos or threes. Throughout the entire ascent they did not make a single awkward step, or an unsuccessful effort of any kind. I have frequently seen tame sheep in mountains jump upon a sloping rock surface, hold on tremulously for a few seconds, and fall back, baffled and irresolute. But in the most trying situations, where the slightest want or inaccuracy would have been fatal, 
these always seem to move in comfortable reliance on their strength and skill, the limits of which they have never appeared to know. Moreover, each one of the flock, while following the guidance of the most experienced, yet climbed with intelligent independence as a perfect individual, capable of separate existence whenever it should wish or be compelled to withdraw from the little clan. The domestic sheep, on the contrary, is only a fraction of an animal, a whole flock being required to form an individual, just as numerous flowerets are required to make one complete sunflower. Those shepherds who, in summer, drive their flocks to the mountain pastures, and while watching them night and day have seen them frightened by bears and storms and scattered like wind-driven chaff, will, in some measure, be able to appreciate the self-reliance and strength and noble individuality of nature's sheep. Like the alp-climbing ibex of Europe, our mountaineer is said to plunge headlong down the faces of sheer precipices and alight on his big horns. I know only two hunters who claim to have actually witnessed this feat. I never was so fortunate. They describe the act as a diving head foremost. The horns are so large at the base that they cover the upper portion of the head down nearly to a level with the eyes, and the skull is exceedingly strong. I struck an old bleached specimen on Mount Ritter a dozen blows with my ice-axe without breaking it. Such skulls would not fracture very readily by the wildest rock-diving, but other bones could hardly be expected to hold together in such a performance, and the mechanical difficulties in the way of controlling their movements after striking upon an irregular surface are in themselves sufficient to show this boulder-like method of progression to be impossible, even in the absence of all other evidence on the subject. Moreover, the ewes follow wherever the rams may lead, although their horns are mere spikes. I have found many pairs of the horns of the old rams considerably battered, doubtless a result of fighting. I was particularly interested in this question, after witnessing the performance of this San Joanquin band, upon the glaciated rocks at the foot of the falls. And as soon as I procured specimens and examined their feet, all the mystery disappeared. The secret, considered in connection with exceptionally strong muscles, is simply this. The wide posterior portion of the bottom of the foot instead of wearing down and becoming flat and hard, like the feet of tame sheep and horses, bulges out in a soft rubber-like pad or cushion, which not only grips and holds well on smooth rocks, but fits into small cavities and down upon or against slight protuberances. Even the hardest portions of the edge of the hoof are comparatively soft and elastic. Furthermore, the toes admit an extraordinary amount of both lateral and vertical movement, allowing the foot to accommodate itself still more perfectly to the irregularities of rock surfaces, while at the same time increasing the gripping power. At the base of Sheep Rock, one of the winter strongholds of the Shasta flocks, there lives a stock-raiser who has had the advantage of observing the movements of wild sheep every winter, 
and in the course of a conversation with him on the subject of their diving habits, he pointed to the front of a lava headland, about a hundred and fifty feet high, which is only eight or ten degrees out of the perpendicular. "'There,' said he, "'I followed a band of them fellows to the back of that rock yonder, and expected to capture them all, for I thought I had a dead thing on them.' I got behind them on a narrow bench that runs along the fence of the wall near the top and comes to an end where they couldn't get away without falling and being killed, but they jumped off and landed all right, as if that were the regular thing with them. "'What?' said I. "'Jumped a hundred and fifty feet perpendicular. Did you see them do it?' "'No,' he replied. "'I didn't see them going down, for I was behind them.' but I saw them go off over the brink, and then I went below and found their tracks, where they struck on the loose rubbish at the bottom. They just sailed right off, and landed on their feet right side up. That is the kind of animal they is, beats anything else that goes on four legs. Illustration. Wild sheep jumping over a precipice. This illustration is a tall rectangular sketch that shows, from a distance, a herd of wild sheep jumping one at a time head first off a very tall steep cliff, high over the tops of the conifers at the base of the picture, and framed by mountain peaks and sky. Return to text. On another occasion a flock that was pursued by hunters retreated to another portion of this same cliff where it is still higher, and on being followed they were seen jumping down in perfect order, one behind another, by two men who happened to be chopping where they had a fair view of them, and could watch their progress from top to bottom of the precipices. Both ewes and rams made the frightful descent without evincing any extraordinary concern hugging the rock closely, and controlling the velocity of their half-falling, half-leaping movements by striking at short intervals and holding back with their cushioned rubber feet upon small ledges and roughened inclines until near the bottom, when they sailed off into the free air and alighted on their feet, but with their bodies so nearly in a vertical position that they appeared to be diving." It appears, therefore, that the methods of this wild mountaineering become clearly comprehensible as soon as we make ourselves acquainted with the rocks, and the kind of feet and muscles brought to bear upon them. The Modoc and Paute Indians are, or rather have been, the most successful hunters of the wild sheep in the regions that have come under my own observation. I have seen large numbers of heads and horns in the caves of Mount Shasta and the Modoc lava beds, where the Indians had been feasting in stormy weather, and also in the canyons of the Sierra opposite Owens Valley, while the heavy obsidian arrowheads found on some of the highest peaks show that this warfare has long been going on. In the more accessible ranges that stretch across the desert regions of western Utah and Nevada, considerable numbers of Indians used to hunt in company like packs of wolves, and being perfectly acquainted with the topography of their hunting grounds, and with the habits and instincts of the game, they were pretty successful. On the tops of nearly every one of the Nevada mountains that I have visited, I found small, nest-like enclosures built of stones, 
in which, as I afterward learned, one or more Indians would lie in wait while their companions scoured the ridges below, knowing that the alarmed sheep would surely run to the summit, and when they could be made to approach with the wind they were shot at short range. Illustration Indians Hunting Wild Sheep this illustration is a pencil sketch showing two Native Americans on a small cliff above a mountain stream. One is clad in a fringed loincloth and has upon his head a hood with protrusions that resemble small sheep horns, and both hold rifles. Next to the men is a slain mountain sheep, with some blood seeping onto the rock. Both men regard in the distance a herd of mountain sheep running up the bank of the river. Faint in the distance, on another ridge, is a line of structures that may be other men. Return to text. Still larger bands of Indians used to make extensive hunts upon some dominant mountain much frequented by the sheep, such as Mount Grant on the Wasuk Range to the west of Walker Lake. On some particular spot, favorably situated with reference to the well-known trails of the sheep, they built a high-walled corral with long guiding wings diverging from the gateway, and into this enclosure they sometimes succeeded in driving the noble game. Great numbers of Indians were of course required, more indeed than they could usually muster, counting in squaws, children, and all. They were compelled, therefore, to build rows of dummy hunters out of stones, along the ridge-tops which they wished to prevent the sheep from crossing. And, without discrediting the sagacity of the game, these dummies were found effective, for with a few live Indians moving about excitedly among them, they could hardly be distinguished at a little distance from men by any one not in on the secret. The whole ridge-top then seemed to be alive with hunters. The only animal that may fairly be regarded as a companion or rival of the sheep is the so-called Rocky Mountain Goat, Aplocerus montana, rich, which, as its name indicates, is more antelope than goat. He, too, is a brave and hardy climber, fearlessly crossing the wildest summits and braving the severest storms but he is shaggy, short-legged, and much less dignified in demeanour than the sheep. His jet-black horns are only about five or six inches in length, and the long white hair with which he is covered obscures the expression of his limbs. I have never yet seen a single specimen in the Sierra, though possibly a few flocks may have lived on Mount Shasta a comparatively short time ago. The ranges of these two mountaineers are pretty distinct, and they see but little of each other, the sheep being restricted mostly to the dry inland mountains, goat or chamois to the wet, snowy, glacier-laden mountains of the northwest coast of the continent in Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska. Probably more than two hundred dwell on the icy volcanic cone of Mount Rainier, and while I was exploring the glaciers of Alaska I saw flocks of these admirable mountaineers nearly every day, and often followed their trails through the mazes of bewildering crevices, in which they are excellent guides. Three species of deer are found in California, the black-tailed, white-tailed, and mule deer. The first mentioned, 
Cervus columbianus is by far the most abundant, and occasionally meets the sheep during the summer on high glacier meadows, and along the edge of the timberline. But being a forest animal, seeking shelter and rearing its young in dense thickets, it seldom visits the wild sheep in its higher homes. The antelope, though not a mountaineer, is occasionally met in winter by the sheep while feeding along the edges of the sage plains and bare volcanic hills to the east of the Sierra. So also is the mule deer, which is almost restricted in its range to this eastern region. The white-tailed species belongs to the coast ranges. Perhaps no wild animal in the world is without enemies, but highlanders as a class have fewer than lowlanders. The wily panther, slipping and crouching among long grass and bushes, pounces upon the antelope and deer, but seldom crosses the bald, craggy thresholds of the sheep. Neither can the bears be regarded as enemies, for though they seek to vary their everyday diet of nuts and berries by an occasional meal of mutton, they prefer to hunt tame and helpless flocks. Eagles and coyotes, no doubt, capture an unprotected lamb at times, or some unfortunate beset in deep, soft snow, but these cases are little more than accidents. So, also, a few perish in long-continued snowstorms, though in all my mountaineering I have not found more than five or six that seem to have met their fate in this way. A little band of three were discovered snowbound in Bloody Canyon a few years ago, and were killed with an axe by mountaineers, who chanced to be crossing the range in winter. Man is the most dangerous enemy of all, but even from him our brave mountain-dweller has little to fear in the remote solitudes of the high Sierra. The golden plains of the Sacramento and San Joanquin were lately thronged with bands of elk and antelope but, being fertile and accessible, they were required for human pastures. So, also, are many of the feeding grounds of the deer, hill, valley, forest, and meadow. But it will be long before man will care to take the highland castles of the sheep. And when we consider how rapidly entire species of noble animals, such as the elk, moose, and buffalo, are being pushed to the very verge of extinction, all lovers of wildness should rejoice with me in the rocky security of Ovis, Montana, the bravest of all the Sierra Mountaineers. End of chapter 14